Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. From WBEZ Chicago, this is Nerdette. I'm Greta Johnson. Here we are. Another Friday is upon us. Coming up, we're going to hear from the two women who team up to write romance novels under the pen name Christina Lauren. You know, there's reasons why we get into it as readers. And then there's reasons why we get into it as writers. And I think as readers, we know that we're promised a happily ever after. Plus, a science writer tells us you can change your personality. A lot of people were kind of thinking like, wait, do I really need to be living the way that I always have been? Or can I actually change something about myself in order to maybe live differently? And the answer to that is yes. But only if you want to. No pressure. I think you are great just the way you are. First up, it's our panel on the week that was. With us today, we have Jonklin Hill, a senior producer for the NPR show 1A and host of the podcast Through the Cracks. JQ, hello. Hey, it's so great to be with you guys again. Yay. And here with us is a reporter who sometimes hosts the NPR politics podcast, Danielle Kurtzleben. Danielle, hello. Hey, great to be back. I love how it sounds like you just like jump in there. You just take over now and then when you feel like it. Excuse me. I will ask the questions hello. now. <laughs> Okay, so this week, I think it's time to start with COVID. Um, A lot has changed in the last week, and it might not all be bad news. The European Union announced it's going to allow vaccinated people to visit. The CDC has this new, like, wear your mask here, but not there, but only if you're vaccinated, but we're not actually going to check situation, which means cities are starting to reconsider actually opening. Here in Chicago, we just heard the multi-day music festival Lollapalooza is happening, which is like a very strange indication that we're totally cool with drunk shit shows, at least. I'm curious, I don't know, like, does it feel to y'all like we're closer to normal life than ever before? And if so, I don't know. How do you feel about that? What do you think, Danielle? A nuance for me, totally personally, is, you know, I, I'm, of course, very happy that we are getting closer back to normal life. But also, I am an incredibly anxious person. I mm-hmm. do. I struggle very much with anxiety. I always have. And COVID has been like COVID has been very hard. But also, it was this weird experience for me of feeling less anxious because, first of all, my anxieties are not in the realm of germs. Um, So I'm not terribly COVID anxious. But second of all, for once, it felt like the world was operating on my level. Yeah. (laughs) And um, we're going to go back to normal. And I I, I feel not bad about that because, by God, I want to get out and be a person again. And I think we all do. And of course, I want the economy to return to normal. But that's, that is going to be a, a real transition, I think, is a, a nice way of saying it. Yeah, it's super confusing. I mean, apparently I'm going out to dinner on we- next Wednesday and I'm getting drinks with someone on Tuesday. And it's just like, wait, what? Like, can I even do that anymore? Like, am I just going to be <laughs> exhausted by Thursday morning? What do you think, JQ? Yeah, like as a person who's both anxious and an extrovert, it's a very confusing <laughs> time for me. Um, so I uh, live by myself, which was by design. 
Um, I used to live in a group house with like four other people. And a few years ago, I was like, no, I got to move on to the next stage of adulthood (laughs) and live by myself. And for the most part, it's been great. But I never thought I'd be in the middle of a global pandemic during it. And so as a person who, you know, is super outgoing and also is a is a big time hugger. Um, it, it was very, it was, it was a challenge y'all. Um, and so I'm starting to get back out there, like, you know, grabbing Mm -hmm. dinner with people, birthday parties. And so like, that's exciting. Um, but it's also really interesting because, you know, I was ready to jump back in, but I'm like, oh, have I learned to say no during the pandemic? (laughs) Is that, is that kind of the lesson that I've gathered that I don't have to go to everything? Although there is part of me that does want to go to everything because, you know, I haven't been to anything in a year. I know. I think that's what's confusing is the like, well, I would like to do all of those things. But like, would I really, though? Like, right. I don't know. And I probably won't know until I cross the line and I'm crying somewhere. <laughs> <You know? laughs> exactly. But like, but I mean, sort of going along with what Jonquilin was saying in terms of like, you know, feel really thinking about whether you're you feel comfortable hugging and really thinking about when you're how you say no and that sort of thing. I feel like a thing that COVID and especially reopening is doing is kind of making us all think about etiquette and boundaries quite a bit. And mm-hmm. if I'm being super silver liningsy and optimistic, I, I I'm willing to say that that is to some degree a good thing. Like I have witnessed people being remarkably considerate in ter- and plenty of people who are not but pe- but in terms of hey we're going like we have a church function in a week or two hey d- we are all vaccinated everyone do we all feel comfortable wearing not wearing masks or would mm-hmm. someone like that or i went and hung out with a friend the other night but she has two small kids i was like do you feel comfortable with me hanging out with your kids without a mask on i i feel like it's it's making us all maybe think of each other a little bit more and that you know that restores my faith in humanity a little bit. Like, good. We're all thinking of each other. I'm fine with that. I mean, from you hearing that from you who, you know, spends your career talking about and thinking about politics, I feel like that is a huge silver lining that you've just said, Danielle. Yeah. Well, I mean, let's also be clear. I was at a political event last weekend or the other weekend where almost no one was masking. So, I mean, you know, not not (laughs) everybody is thinking of everyone and not everybody. And Mm. anyway, it's it's complicated. So speaking of politics, intelligence agencies are set to deliver a report to Congress about unidentified aerial phenomenon, also known as UFOs. Um, Ezra Klein wrote an op-ed for The New York Times recently with the headline, even if you think discussing aliens is ridiculous, just hear me out. Danielle, since you are a political reporter, is this something that's even remotely on your radar? Yeah, no, I mean, it's... It was on my radar anyway, but that's because I was a longtime X-Files super fan, like from <laughs> middle school onward. So this this is a thing that I care about anyway. This um, is up your alley. Oh, God. Yeah. I mean, it's it's on my radar, especially in terms of the some of the things around it in terms of uh, trust in government. I mean, this mm. is very much a conspiracy theory that is about lack of trust in government, as many conspiracy theories are, right? So, and lack of trust in government is connected to so many other things, pretty much any kind of trutherism out there. Um, so, to the degree that it intersects with those things, yeah, because lack of trust in government is one of the most profound political forces at work in our country and has been for many decades at this point. So in that sense, yeah, it's on my radar. Uh, but also, it is also nice to some degree to think about a topic that is bigger than national boundaries. Yes. Yeah. You know? 
Yeah, I think that's partly what I love about it just so much is like any kind of sciencey thing that really proves how little we actually know. Yeah. I just find really fascinating in terms of like getting us all out of our bullshit to a certain extent, you know? Correct. Yeah. <laughs> what do you think, JQ? Are you were you an X-Files person? So I was not an X-Files person, but I think it's so um to me it's really fascinating and the column gets at this that kind of the default is to get into like the military aspect when it comes to aliens like i it's just very curious and interesting to me that you know that's kind of where we go to with aliens not like ooh, you know international relations or intergalactic (laughs) relations i guess it would be or you know science and like food it's like military that's kind of where we go with it um but I don't know, like, I think there might, maybe there are aliens out there, maybe there aren't, but I'm, I feel very chill about it. Um, and I don't know why. <laughs> I, I, there are, like, lots of working theories. I remember having a discussion with a coworker who was telling me about how, like, George Clinton and Bootsy Collins talked about being abducted by aliens and just, like, <laughs> the different experiences of people who say they've been abducted by aliens and how, like, Black people tend to be more chill about it than white people because it's this idea of like someone coming to where you live and taking you away and just it, maybe it being like, well, you know, historically it's happened before. So <laughs> what is the difference? here? I don't know. I'm just real chill about aliens. Man. Is that weird? Maybe I'm weird, but they don't freak me out. I'm like, yeah, maybe. No, I like it. I mean, I don't know. To a certain extent, if there were intelligent life in this universe and they had the technology to be able to come to Earth and they haven't already destroyed us, then they're probably better than we are, right? Yeah, and maybe we're not that interesting. I am afraid, though, that hypothetically, let's say aliens do land or come talk to us tomorrow, that as... Ezra gets at in that column that we that we will get bogged down in the mundanities around it. That no, it might not necessarily be about the military, but all, for some reason, the, the kind of sad place my brain went to is like some poor schmuck is going to have to write the "What does this mean for 2024?" article, and, <laughs> oh, no. oh, and it's going to be you. <laughs> <laughs> I know. <laughs> Oh, my goodness. I, I don't know, though. Part of me does think that having gone through a year of global pandemic, which is something that I would never have anticipated having to survive, like, I am better equipped now than I would have been over a year ago in terms of just like unprecedented occurrence impacting the entire globe, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Like at this point, it's like global financial crisis, endless wars, climate crisis, pandemic, aliens. Sure. Like, yeah, like, like okay. a logical conclusion. You know. Yeah. Yeah. We'll figure it out. Um, one thing I was really curious to talk to you all about is this thing that happened to me last week. My Twitter was a stir with people complaining about the phrase geriatric millennials. Uh, <laughs> it popped up partly because of a medium post about how people who were born between 1980 and 1985, which full disclosure, I am apparently are primed to lead the new workforces and essentially like be the boomer whisperers to Gen Z and vice versa. Um, Danielle, you are also in this age range, right? Yes, I am. I believe I'm the oldest of all of us. I am 38. So I am a quite old millennial. Okay. So yeah, I just turned 36. How much do you hate the phrase geriatric millennial? I could go on a tear. Okay, look, to be honest, I, I don't hate the phrase at all. Like, I just want to lead with that. Like, I, I was seeing people tweet about this. And I was thinking about this. And I was thinking like, 
this is how I feel about the whole thing of Gen Z hating on, you know, skinny jeans or <laughs> side parts or whatever. Like, mm-hmm. look, look, our generation at this point, especially us older ones, like we've gone through two recessions and a pandemic. We're watching the climate worsen. We've been through endless war. They, we, we, I, I, we older ones, I am staring down the end of my fertility. I recently gave up on buying a house. I have student loan debt. Like, you go ahead and call me whatever the fuck you want. I don't, I don't care. I just, like, fine. I, I'm sorry. I this. Like, generational warfare, unless it's directed at boomers, makes me absolutely crazy. Like, because, like, because, look, I was reading this and I was thinking every single generation has to have this crap. Like, when typewriters came out, were the older people being like, man, the kids are going to forget how to write. No. (laughs) Or maybe they were. But, like, if so, we didn't forget how to write. And so this whole thing, this article that we're talking about talks about how... Gen Z can't read body language and boomers right. hate them for it. Like, right. this is just <laughs> this is how it goes, you know? Yeah. So, JQ, you are also a millennial. Did you see this on your Twitter at all oh, last week? Oh, I definitely did. Yes. <laughs> um, and it's really fascinating because um, I was born in 90. So I'm smack dab in the middle of being a millennial. Um, so you're like, what would we call that? Like a, a midlife crisis millennial? <laughs> yeah. Like the thing is, I get a lot of the like zillennial because I don't call them geriatric millennials. I guess y'all are zillennials because you're on the cusp between Gen X and millennials. Oh, oh yeah. Wow. They call it. Yeah. However you pronounce it. The Xennial thing. Yeah. The yeah. same way I guess zillennials, oh, which are like on the later people born after me or the mix between. They're pronounced the same. Whatever. <laughs> people exist. <laughs> Another problem. None of us can like afford to buy a house that's what we all have in common let's be real here yeah but um yeah it's just uh, it was just really funny and i think the my biggest takeaway from the article itself because i saw the jokes flying about geriatric millennials which they were excellent but then i read the article and i was like okay this feels very girl boss adjacent which to me is even (laughs) more irritating than like the geriatric millennial situation and also it kind of it kind of shed on people who are millennials because i think at one point it was like no one born after 1990 really knows how to use a phone and it's like okay um Mm -hmm. a yes we do because we would like get home from third grade call our friends click over to call another friend have that friend click over to call another friend and the next thing you know you have six people on the phone and but yeah i was just like you know sometimes Someone not taking a good message has less to do with how old they are and more to do with the fact that it's their first job and they're flustered and they don't know what they're doing. And now they feel like crap because they don't know what they're doing. But you learn to know what you're doing by feeling like crap a couple times. Like it's just it's just the circle of life. And I don't know, just making it seem like, oh, these quote unquote geriatric millennials are going to be the great, you know, bridging the divide between Zoomers and Boomers like Guys, boomers are our parents. We help them with their iPads constantly. Like, we know what we're doing. (laughs) Danielle, JQ, thank you both so much. This was a pleasure. This was great. Love it. Y'all 
know, Nerdette is a celebration of all of the things we loved. And it occurred to me recently that one thing I am a big fan of, but which we haven't really talked about much on Nerdette, is the romance novel. So today we are going to dive in with two experts. Our guests are Christina Hobbs and Lauren Billings, who have written more than a dozen novels together under the pen name Christina Lauren. Their newest book, The Soulmate Equation, is out next week. The premise is essentially that there's like a dude who's figured out a way to determine a couple's compatibility based on a blood test. Our protagonist is Jess. She's a data statistician who, you know, believes in science, but is highly skeptical of ideas like fate and true love. She takes the blood test and, of course, finds out the dude she keeps running into who she hates is her perfect love match. He also just happens to be the dude who invented the test. Christina Lauren, welcome. Yay! Hey, hello! (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so let's start with the soulmate equation, which, as I said, is out soon. I adored it. I mean, I think for a lot of people, it won't be surprising to hear that this is, you know, in a lot of ways, kind of a classic like enemies to lovers story, but it has some pretty great embellishments. Um, Let's start with just how you came up with the idea. Lauren, you want to start us off? Sure. I I had gotten really, really into the Theranos scandal a couple years back. Oh, interesting. Um, You know, the book Bad Blood by John Carreyrou, I thought was fascinating. And I just got really into the idea of the new biotech and all of the excitement and the drama and the things that can happen. And then sort of sidebar to that, you know, we were in the middle of that sort of surge of people who were doing 23andMe and these genetic tests where you literally spit into a vial and mail it away. And you get these results about, you know, not only what your sort of cultural heritage is, what countries your your ancestors have come from, but also you'll get these updates like, are you more or less likely to taste soap when you eat cilantro? Oh, <laughs> and sure. like, do you have thick or thin hair follicles? And just all these random things that they can tell you based on your DNA. And it just the idea of a dating service that could find your soulmate based on extensive personality tests and longitudinal studies of emotional happiness and people who've been married for a long time and what patterns appear in DNA based on those studies. And we just kind of spun with it and had a really good time writing a romance about it. Spun with it. That's, that's a, that's a pun. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry. I had to, I think the one, I mean, I don't know. There were a lot of things that I really liked about this book. I think one of them was that, So often in a rom-com, I feel like the, you know, it's like maybe they start as friends or whatever. They get together. There's some kind of lame miscommunication, like someone there's a secret or, you know, someone did something in the past that they feel like they should tell the person but can't manage to. And that's sort of like the crux of the drama. And then they get together eventually once they like get over their shame or whatever. Uh And, you know, not to like denigrate those books by any means. But I have to say one thing I really loved about Soulmate Equation is that I felt Felt like the two main characters communicated honestly with each other the entire time. Yes. And and I it's so funny because we always see, you know, reviews of books or something where people are like, why don't they just talk? And it's like, well, right. that's that people don't. <laughs> A lot of the time. That's like part of the problem. And right. I think for these two, like Jess is like, she's our first sort of like single mom. So she has to be pretty open and honest about like what she's doing. Cause it's not just her. It's also, you know, her daughter that she's bringing into this. And so mm-hmm. that was one of the things that we really wanted this time to try and do something a little different that it wasn't just, you know, I forgot to tell you something or yeah. so I'm glad that it worked. And I also think too, that 
both Jess and River are scientists. And yes, so yes. they want to deal in information. That's sort of their, that's where they start. They start with facts and then they move from there. So I think, you know, because that's how their brains work and because they come from a place where they don't really like each other to start, they have no reason to sugarcoat things. And um, I think it starts them off in a good place. I really love writing and reading books where characters talk to each other. They speak to each other like adults. Yeah, it's so refreshing. And there's still a vulnerability to that. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not like that's like obviously super easy, but I just like... I don't know. I think there's something really refreshing about when that's not where the the drama comes from, you know, because they're both still kind of in it together, even when they're both having a really hard time of it, you mm-hmm. know? That's great. So you two are best friends, right? We are. We are. Yes. yes. <laughs> so fanfic was the start. Christina, why why were you intrigued by fanfic? Um, you know, so Lo grew up writing fanfic, even though at, when she was like younger, didn't really know what it was. She was just writing stories in her notebook, you know. Um, <laughs> I did not know what fanfic was until I was in my, like, I was in my early 30s and was recovering um, from surgery and was mm. just like goofing around online and stumbled upon, like, everybody's gonna laugh. I, I started out writing Twilight fanfic. And, um, I stumbled upon twilighted.net, which was this um, big, you know, like it was kind of like my pre FFnet or live journal or anything or AO3. And um, it was just, it blew my mind that there were these women, like smart women writing these stories for each other that were just love stories that just happened to be set in this world or using these characters' names. And I could not believe when I started writing fic that like I got to do this and just make stuff up. Um, Mm -hmm. It was life-changing for me. That's so interesting because I feel like what you're saying about fanfic is something that seems really striking to me about romance as a genre too, the idea that they're just like smart women Mm -hmm. writing stories for each other. Yes, Mm -hmm. absolutely. Is that like, do you think that really is the core of, of what appeals to people about romance so much? What do you think, Lauren? I mean, I think there's, you know, there's reasons why we get into it as readers. And then there's reasons why we get into it as writers. And I think Mm -hmm. as readers, we know that we're promised a happily ever after. That's the contract that you have with the reader when you're writing a romance novel. By definition, um, a romance novel has a happily ever after. And so there's comfort in that. You know that there's going to be strife on the way. You don't know how the journey is going to go. There will be times where you will be stressed, but you are promised at the end that you will be satisfied. Mm -hmm. And so I think, you know, especially in like the last year, that has been a genre that many, many readers have turned to because we all need that sort of feeling of hope at the end. Right. Yeah. Um, And I think for writers and also readers, romance is this huge thriving community of women. Um, very supportive. It is very much a, you know, rising tides lift all boats scenario. We read each other's books. We pimp each other's books online. We are more than happy to shout about the things that we love. And, you know, I don't know about you, but I've been thinking about this a lot this weekend, that the one thing I have really, really missed is time with women in person over the last Mm -hmm. year. And I think, you know, romance as a genre gives us that feeling sort of obviously indirectly this year, but it's something that we get to do and experience as soon as we sit down and crack open a book. Huh, I think that's a really good way of putting it. What do you think, Christina? I mean, it does seem like, especially in terms of publishing, that romance is like a pretty sweet little corner of the convention center or whatever. 
Oh yeah. I mean, I think like when, when we first started writing, I think it was like mostly women. That is mo that is definitely changed. There are definitely all genders and stuff writing. Um, but it is, it's this thing that we all come looking for the same thing, which is this happily ever after. And we all got there in our own way. It's one of those things. I remember Lo and I were sitting at um, San Diego Comic-Con and we were in line for some sort of twilight event. And this mm -hmm. guy was next to us and he was sort of heckling us a little bit, but he was dressed like an elf. And it was like, <laughs> it was like, we're all here for our own thing. There's like no shame. We're just all here for this thing that we love. And I think that's what it is. It's just in romance. We just love, love stories, you know, mm -hmm. however it's told for whoever it's for, we just all have this in common and we're all, you know, going for the same thing. I do think to your point though, Greta, that, you know, the genre itself is a very, very big genre in fiction. It is, it outsells, I think the next highest one by like almost double, mm -hmm. um, you know, it pulls in over a billion dollars a year for publishing and romance readers are voracious. So the pace of romance publishing is fast. Books comes out, come out quickly. You know, Christina, I think this is our 27th book. Like it, right. I mean, you came out with one in, was that December too? In October. Yeah. In October. Yeah. Um, That's crazy. The pace. Yeah. It's breakneck, but it's great because readers just devour these books. I think because of that speed too, that romance really is poised to be on the front end of cultural change. You know, we are the ones saying we need LGBTQ representation in romance. We are the ones saying we need better disability rep. We are the ones saying we need own voices stories. I mean, I think these are people from romance community that are really banging on the door of publishing. And I love to see that, you know, and it makes me proud of the, the community in general, because I feel like we do want to say like love stories belong to everybody. Mm -hmm. I think another evolution that I've seen that I especially appreciate as a single person is that it feels to me like more and more romance novels, even if there is a happily ever after at the end, they're not, there's it's not about like the single woman having a deficiency until she meets the dude and then is finally absolutely a oh, yeah. and like it's I don't ever feel shamed that like I happen to be listening to this while living alone in my apartment you know what I mean and I actually think the contrary I think in some ways romance is embracing the idea that women don't need romance and that it's huh. and that it's going to take that perfect person and it might not be who you expect. It's going to take that perfect person, the hero or the heroine or somebody you don't expect at all to come into your life and just turn everything upside down. Um, I love that evolution in the genre. Where I was just going to say that. Yeah. It's not about like completing your life. It's about finding the person you would fall in love with. Mm -hmm. That's a, I, you know, I hadn't gone that far to think of it that way, but you're totally right. And I love it. Yeah, that's good stuff. It's perfect. Lauren, Christina, thank you so much. This was really fun to talk with you. Thanks for having us. Thank this you. After the break, we're going to hear from science writer Olga Kazan about how you can change your personality. But, you know, only if that's something you're into. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. 
Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. You can be a whole new person on the other side of the pandemic. That's the headline of a story Olga Kazan recently wrote, and it is the spirit that I am super into. Olga is a science writer for The Atlantic, and she has a book called Weird. Olga, welcome. Hi. Yes. Thanks so much for having me. Um, so I loved the story that you wrote. I love the idea of reinvention. I think a lot of us probably already feel like we're different people after the last year that we all lived through. But can you explain what you're getting at with this article you wrote? Yeah. Um, so I think that this pandemic, I mean, obviously, people have had so many different experiences, most of them probably bad. Um, but I think it's also for some people like a time of reinvention, like a lot of people told me that, you know, maybe something changed about their job or just even working from home, you have more time for like self-reflection. And a lot of people were kind of thinking like, wait, do I really need to be living the way that I always have been? Or can I actually um, change something about myself in order to maybe live differently? Um, and the answer to that is yes. So yeah, you talk about the as if principle. Can you explain what that is? So the as if principle is exactly what it sounds like. It's that you behave as if you are the person that you want to be. And eventually you might find that it is you. Um, and the way to do that is like as straightforward as it sounds is basically to um, kind of act in the way that you want this like end point person <laughs> to, to be like. So let's say you're really uh, introverted. Um, if you want to be more extroverted, you might sign up uh, for public speaking, you know, or uh, stand up comedy or something. Or you might uh, mm -hmm. go to bars and just strike up conversations with strangers and that uh, over time, you'll actually become more extroverted. That's so crazy. Yeah. You also describe a study that's similar where people use an app to hold themselves accountable for personality changes. So like if they did want to become more extroverted, the app would prompt them to like talk to a stranger at the grocery store and then follow up to see if they actually did it. And apparently it had a pretty significant impact on their growth compared to people who didn't use the app. So like, I don't know. I mean, how much a personality is actually just like habit or behavior? Yeah. So it's something like 50%. So like, um, hmm. like 50% is sort of like your parents and like, so you, like your genes and your, you know, the way you were kind of raised. Um, but 50% is sort of um, up in the air and you have a lot of wiggle room there. Mm -hmm. So one thing you talk about in the article that I think is really important to highlight also is is the role therapy can play in this. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So um, one kind of uh, meta-analysis of studies found that a month of any kind of therapy um, reduced neuroticism by about half the amount that you might expect it to see naturally decline over the course of your life. So as we get older, we get um, gradually less neurotic, um, which is great news <laughs> for all of us. Um, but like, you know, it's, so if you like talk to a teenager and it's like some, you know, boy said something to her and it's like the worst thing ever. And, you know, it's, you know, teenagers tend to be kind of a little bit more dramatic because that is sort of like you, you're at your peak neuroticism <laughs> um, uh, when you're that age. And then gradually, you know, by the time you're 60, some boy says something to you and you're like, whatever. Um, so um, what these studies are finding is that like just going to therapy can actually reduce that by about half the amount that you might expect to see it naturally fall. Um, uh, even if it's like a kind of therapy that's not focused on 
you know, like CBT or something that's like cognitive behavioral therapy. Yeah. Yeah. Something that's not super behavioral, even if it's just like, tell me about your childhood style therapy. Um, that can still even, uh, work for changing your personality. That is wild. So as I mentioned, you wrote a book called Weird. It explores the idea of being an outsider and how that's not always a bad thing. You kind of hinted at this earlier, but I think it's also really important around, you know, kind of this conversation of like self-improvement, which I feel like we're not too far from. When is it appropriate for someone to change their personality versus like just accepting themselves for being great and weird? You know, like I feel like there I don't know. Is there a distinction somewhere? Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's like a hard and fast rule. Um, and yeah, my book was all about like loud and proud uh, weirdos who yes. uh, didn't were not like uh, eager to change themselves necessarily. Um, but I did find a couple people who were like, you know, the the thing that is separating me most from other people and that is like isolating me most um, and causing me the most distress is just the fact that um, I have like certain things about my, my thought patterns or, or, or behavior patterns, um, that are just like not serving me well. Um, I know that's like kind of a cliche, but it's like, um, this guy, uh, Todd, um, which is a pseudonym, but he's this guy that I interviewed who really like, there's something wrong with him, but he just never really made friends. Like he was just never kind of developed the like strategy that other people maybe like come to naturally earlier in life. And so he kind of made it all the way to adulthood without any close friends. Um, and so really the thing that he decided he needed to do, like all the other elements of his life were in place, but he just was like, I just need to find a way to make non-romantic friends as an adult, because like, Mm -hmm. it is like ruining my life to have like literally no one to talk to other than my spouse. (laughs) And, um, so yeah, so that's what he did. And he had to like, like figure out like, Oh, like if you want to be friends with someone, you have to like text them in between the times that you meet up or like, here are some of the things that people talk to their friends about. Um, and, you know, it sounds really dumb, but it's like, it's like, um, you know, sometimes it's, it, you know, change is, is like kind of hard and kind of awkward, but um, he actually did do that. And now he has like a regular circle of, of people that he can hang out with. Mm, that's really sweet. Well, from one weirdo to another, Olga, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's great to chat with you. Absolutely. It's always a good time. All right, that's it for this week. Coming up on Tuesday, it's book club day. That means you'll hear the panel discussion of our May book pick, White Ivy. You will also get to hear what our June book selection is. And speaking of June and books, we have a virtual event coming up and you are invited. We're calling it the Nerdette Virtual Book Society. We're going to have an indie bookseller who can give tailored book recommendations to you. Plus, we're going to have genre-based breakout rooms where you can talk about what you're reading now, get recommendations on what to read next and meet other nerd out listeners i am super excited about this i would love for you to come it is on tuesday june 8th at 7 p.m central you can get more information about it if you go to wbez.org slash events the episode was produced by me and isabel carter our executive producer is brendan banizak have a great weekend Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen 
as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.